Zechariah, we looked at the first six chapters, which was a night of eight visions that Zechariah had, wild and crazy visions, powerful visions that the Lord gave him. The second section of the book is chapter 7 and chapter 8, that what we're going to look at today. And if you compare chapter 7, verse 1 with chapter 1, verse 1, you'll find it's instead of the second year of King Darius, it's now the fourth year of King Darius. So this is two, about two years later is where we come, which would rather be, be right around November, December of 518 B.C. as we take a look there at verse 1. Now in that fourth year of King Darius, it came to pass that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month of Chislev which is around the end of November, the beginning of December in our calendar. And so when the people sent Shirazer and Regim Melech, uh, the first guy's name means protector of the king. The second guy's name means friend of the king. So these guys were diplomats, very possibly had come back uh, from Babylon and were dignitaries now down in their area of the Ephraim of um, the tribe of Ephraim area, to the house of God, which is, in, which is referring to Bethel, not the temple. Remember, that's the whole reason Haggai and Zechariah was written, because they, the temple wasn't getting built. And now they've got about another three years, two or three years to finish that temple, so the temple's not there. So evidently they were meeting in a very famous city. Beth is house, El is the name God in the Hebrew, Bethel, house of God, Bethel. Uh, in um, the tribe of Ephraim, uh, that area, the northern part of Israel, evidently they had sort of set up um, a temporary place of worship there. And uh, that's where the high priest, that's where the priests were at, evidently, instead of Jerusalem, why they were building the temple. So they came to this place, the house of God, to pray before the Lord. And as they were praying, they came to the priest to ask them a question. They asked the priests who were in the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophet saying, should I weep in the fifth month and fast as I have done for so many years? Now when the Lord responds in verse 5, he's going to also mention a seventh month. Uh, the fifth month and the seventh month. Now, what had taken place here is they had a question. It does say in Leviticus 10.11, if you have a, that the priest, the Jewish priests were to teach the children of Israel, in Malachi 2.7 it says, uh, For the lips of the priest should keep knowledge, and the people should seek the law from his mouth. So they did right. They had a, a question. Now the question was, is that they had set up these four times, as we go on over to chapter 8, verse 19, there was actually four times of fasting throughout the year to commemorate the destruction that had happened from Babylon. And... Um, Fourth month, uh, on the 17th day, they had uh, the mourning over the capture of Jerusalem. We learned that in Jeremiah 52, verses 6 through 30. And then on the fifth month, uh, they had the burning of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. We find in 2 Kings 25, verses 2 through 10. Then on the seventh month, they had another day of fasting, which was the assassination of Gedaliah and the massacre of 80 men. You can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 25, verse 25. And then in the 10th month, they had the beginning of Nebuchadnezzar's siege against Jerusalem in 2 Kings 25.1, which was that final uh, destruction. And so they had uh, these four times of setting up to commemorate, to remember 
their 911, if you would, uh, of destruction. Now, there's only one time the Lord required for them to fast, and that's found in Leviticus 16 and also chapter 23, and that was on the Day of Atonement. But now that they're in the process of building the new temple, uh, this destruction from Babylon, sort of a past event, uh, 70 years plus removed at this time, they're asking, do we keep on commemorating this through having these extra days of fasting that we've done for so many years? It sounds like they're sick and tired of it, and they're hoping the question is, you don't have to do it anymore. Well, there in verse 4, the word of the Lord of the host came to me saying, say to all the people of the land of the priests, when you fast and mourn in the fifth and the seventh months during those 70 years, did you really fast for me, for me, or for me, unto me? Now, the real question, God comes back and, and he asks, did I ever start it? Or as if you did it, did you do it really as unto me? Now, you got to understand something here. The Bible contains, everything that's in the Bible is 100% truth, but the Bible doesn't contain all truth. The Bible doesn't necessarily say the grass is green. We know that's true, but it doesn't have to say it in the Bible. There's other truth. But yet all that's in the Bible is true, and if it contradicts the Bible, then it is not true. And so we can have things that are called extra-biblical without being unbiblical. So in other words, we meet here on Sunday mornings with all the rows arranged in such a way, and we have a platform and a pulpit and all of... Now, where is that in the Bible? Show me where a microphone is in the Bible. Well, you're not going to find that. But it doesn't contradict what God is doing. It's not against His nature. Now, if it's against the Scripture, then we need to not do it. But yet I have a pulpit, and the Bible doesn't say you can't have one. I don't think we'll find in the Bible where you're supposed to have one. If you don't have one, you're in sin. But at the same time, to have one, in no way, it's just a practical usage. However, when some of those things that become tradition begin to contradict the Word of God, now it's no longer extra-biblical, it indeed becomes unbiblical. And this was an issue that Jesus faced in Matthew 15. Why don't you turn there in your Bibles? In Matthew chapter 15, there in verse 1. Then the scribes and the Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of Israel? of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. Now, it didn't say they didn't wash. It's talking about a ceremonial washing that they had amongst the Jews. They still have it today. When we take our trips to Israel and outside the restaurants or hotels, they'll have a little basin there. And usually if there's a, some people in our tour, I'll say, come here, let me show you. And through the course of events, I'll pretty much able to show everybody on the trip sooner or later how it works. And, and so I put my hand, you know, in there. If no Jews are looking because they don't want Gentile stuff in there. And... Uh, and so you put your hands in there and then you tip your hands back this way and let the water fall off the edge of the back of your hand right in front of your wrist. And then you dip your hands forward and let the water drip off the pinkies. Then you sort of shake your hands off and 
there's a rag there you can finish drying your hands or you do it on your clothes or whatever. You pretty much got them dry by letting the dripping process. And that's to get all that yucky Gentile stuff off of you so you can now go and eat and be cleansed instead of, you know, having shook the hand of a Gentile and now I'm picking up my piece of chicken and I'm getting Gentile stuff on me as it's going inside me because I have some Gentile touch. That, that's the, the concept. That's not in the Bible. They just sort of thought this through and made this up and, and, you know, wasn't anything bad. But now they're accusing them of something unbiblical or they're, they're accusing them of a sinful act by not doing this when it was just tradition. It wasn't in the Bible. And Jesus answered back and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever says to his father or mother, Whatever profit you might have received from the gift of God, or Corban, as it tells us, then the need, he need not honor his father or mother. Thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect to your tradition. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching the doctrines, the commandments of men. Teaching as this is what God wants, the traditions of men. And so there is that line. Now, they had made up this thing that everything they receive because they're a priest, they don't need to bless their parents with it because, well, it was given to me not as a person but as a priest. Uh, therefore, I don't need to give it to my parents. And, and they were not showing honor to their parents in this. And God is saying, you made up a tradition that's in contradiction to the word of God. And by you keeping your tradition of this thing called Corban, you are violating clear passages of the scripture about honoring your father and mother. And then he comes back and he says, you have all these traditions that you're a part of, but the bottom line is, is you worship me outwardly, but not truly from the heart. You see, religion wants to replace relationship with God. Religion's a lot easier than relationship. Because with religion, we can just put ourselves on automatic pilot. We just go through the rituals. We go through the steps. And when we go through the steps, we're, we're done with it, and we did our religious duty, and, and we don't have to have a heart. We don't have to have passion. We don't have to have love. We don't have to have zeal. We don't have to have that, that, that heart of fire pressing in upon the Lord because all I have to do is go through the motions. And God hates that. God despises that. And so the question is, you know, it's not so much are you fasting those extra four times a year. That could be good. It could be bad. It depends on, number one, why you're doing it. Number two, the way you're doing it. Number three, the heart in doing it. So first of all, he asked the question, when you were doing it, were you doing it for me? Now, that question can come right back to you. Because this morning, we did a lot of traditions. We traditionally got up on a Sunday morning. Now, there's a scripture in Corinthians that alludes when you get together the first day of the week. So some say, yeah, the Christians were meeting on the first day of the week on the day that the Lord raised from the dead. In Romans 14, it says it doesn't matter the day. If one man chooses one day, it's more holy than another. Well, it's to him and between him and the Lord that he chooses it more holy. Paul says, for me, I choose every day as holy. 
There's not one day that should be holier. Every day should be holy. So to come back, we have made Sunday mornings a morning that we have chosen to get together and the first day of the week to put the Lord first. And so we've done that. Now, some of you this morning have sort of just put your mind and your body on autopilot. You got up, you went through the motions, you came to church. And the Lord's going to ask you the question, God, do we need to keep singing every Sunday for a half an hour before we get into the Bible study, as we have always done? Now, is it in the Bible we need to sing half an hour? No, it's not. So, the Lord's coming back saying, it's not whether you sing one minute or a half an hour or ten, ten hours. The question is, when you did sing, did you do it to me? Did you do it as unto me? You see, there's some people this morning that put themselves on such autopilot, you could have started singing a Mickey Mouse song and they probably wouldn't have noticed it. Because their mind was on what they're going to eat when they get out of here. Their mind was on the things they need to get it done this week. Their mind was on what sports is going to be on this afternoon on TV. And when they did sing, they did not worship God. In vain did you have a time of worship and song. Oh, outwardly your lips moved, but inwardly there was no true worship and sacrifice unto God. And so when we come to worship in song, we, we need to say, I, I don't want this to be a traditional thing. Greg Opine, when he was in Baia, Hungary, and started the church there, there was such a revival in the city amongst the youth that they were all coming out to their Bible studies. They were having Bible studies literally every night of the week. From 7 till 10, sometimes midnight, they'd have one or two Bible, they'd have at least two Bible studies, sometimes more, every night of the week. But then when the people that did go to church came and were a part of the Bible, say, this is great. When are you going to start a church? Greg said, we already have. But you don't meet Sunday mornings. You're not a church until you meet on Sunday mornings. And Greg realized if we started a church on Sunday morning at this point, these guys would be able to take this beautiful move of God and make it into his dead mold that would kill it. And so he purposed in his heart, we're not going to ever meet on Sunday mornings. We're just going to do what we're doing. Well, you're not a church because you don't meet on Sunday mornings. Well, that's you and your traditional mindset saying such a thing. Now, if you look back again, there's, there's a lot of wonderful practical things that tradition can bring. You might remember there's a lot of churches that have robes. You say, well, why do you have a robe? Well, because hundreds of years ago, you had the rich and you had the poor, and the rich would deck themselves out, and when they sing in the choir, they would draw attention to themselves, and the poor people would be ashamed to sing in the choir because they didn't have nice enough clothes. And it was a clear class distinction, and so they didn't want that. It wasn't glorifying to God that the people would deck themselves out to draw attention to themselves, and it wasn't glorifying to God that people would be embarrassed to stand up in front of the congregation. So they gave everybody an equal robe. At the beginning, it was just a white robe, and then they made different colors, and they put lace on them and gold lace on them, and they began to, until it sort of took on a, a characteristic of their own. And today, if you ask people, why do we wear a robe in choir? They'd say, we've always done it. In reality, there's no reason for it now. At least in our day and age, at least in our country, there would be no practical reason for it. 
But sometimes we get in this mode and we just keep doing it because we've always done it. And the, probably one of the best things to do is, is just destroy the whole thing and start over. And this is actually what Jesus says. It came to this issue to his disciples. Why aren't you fasting like John the Baptist and also us Pharisees are doing? Look in Matthew chapter 9, what Jesus said. They're starting in verse 15 of Matthew chapter 9. Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, referring to Jesus dying and raising again and being taken away. And then, notice, they will fast. Fasting will be a part of the church, of the Christian church, he says. But then he goes on and gives this important analogy. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on old garments, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskin, or else the wineskin break, and the wine is spilled, and the wineskin is ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskin, and both are preserved. Jesus here gives an indication that in the church, that God's going to have a season of something, and it's going to empty out, and then you can't say, but, but I love this old garment. Let's patch it up and let's try to reuse it. Let's just ask God to fill it with a new wine in this old bag. And God says no. One, if you put a, a, a piece of leather that hasn't been shrunk equally to the leather you're putting it on, when the wine goes in and, and the fermentation process begins, that one patch is going to start shrinking. The other garment isn't. And there's going to be a worse tear. Or if you take the old bag and put the new wine, it, it's not resilient enough as it was when it was a new wineskin to handle the fermentation process and that new wine when it begins to ferment is going to break that bag into pieces. No, there's only one answer and that's a new wine and a new wineskin. And so when we moved from our one building to this building, some people thought, how can you worship God in a gymnasium? I remember the good old days in our church. It was so much smaller, and we were so much happier there. I think what's happening here is better. But at first, I have to agree, it was nicer not to have to set up and tear down and all that. I mean, we all go through that process where it feels weird and different, and, and then God does it. But there's going to be some of you, when we move into the new building, going, oh, we're so religious now with a building. We were so much cooler when we met back in the gymnasium. I felt more comfortable there. I feel stifled in this new building. There'll be a percentage of people that'll say that. I guarantee it. Or they'll say this. I can't go to the new building now that it's so much farther away than the gymnasium. It's around the corner. But in their minds, it's going to be another 50 miles. People are strange that way. And the, the thing is, you have to get rid of the old wineskin. I, I know in the early Jesus movement days of Calvary Chapel, God just blessed with literally hundreds of rock bands. And any one of those bands, if you said they were playing, you could be a church of 50 people, and you would have 3,000 people show up to listen to the band, and half of them would be non-Christians. And you could preach the gospel and have 500 people come to the Lord. And that season went on for, oh, 10 years, 15 years maybe. I know at Costa Mesa every Saturday night they had these concerts, packed the place out, standing room only, people on the floor, people crowded in the aisles, and, and every week just a powerful move of God. 
But then it came to the point that the pastors and the janitors and the elders and everybody have to get to church early Sunday morning because the parking lot was filled with beer bottles and beer cans and cigarette stubs and trash. What had happened is that which was once a move of God had become just sort of this click, if you would. And people weren't bringing non-Christians anymore. And people weren't getting, I mean, it wasn't that the bands weren't powerful. It wasn't that the word of God wasn't preached. It's just that wineskin had ran out. And Chuck said, hey, no more Saturday night concerts. And people flipped going, that's our bread and butter. You know it isn't, preaching the gospel. Preaching the word is our bread and butter. But man, that's how God, that's right. That's the way God moved in the, at one time. But he's not doing that anymore. There aren't radical anointed bands that are drawing the non-Christian to come and listen and to hear the gospel anymore. That's an old wineskin. And then God raised up Greg Laurie with the Harvest Crusades. And there's another wineskin. And boy, everybody's doing crusades now. And that's the, that's the thing. Maybe that, that season really has never come into the full fermentation process yet. I, I don't know. But there comes that point where you say, even though it was just a wonderful wine, it was a wonderful time. God's constantly saying, I'm going to turn things topsy-turvy. It's going to be totally changed. And it's going to have to be a new wine skin for the new wine. I know when we started the church here 18 years ago, and we had people from the neighborhood come out. And I remember one particular uh, older man in particular who came, and he came for several months. And... Um, he came and he said, you know, I have to be honest with you. I've been a Christian, I don't know what it was, 50 years or something. And, and I have learned more of the Bible in the four or five months that I have been here than I've ever learned in all my life. And he goes, if it were me, I would keep coming here, but I brought my wife with me. And the fact that you guys don't dress up in suits and ties and all the ladies are wearing dresses, she feels it's so irreverent to God that she just feels she can't listen to anything you have to say. Now, I was grieved for him, but at the same time, I'm not going to go get a suit and tie and put it on to try to say, let's, let's go back to this old wineskin to try to fill it with new wine. It's not going to happen. God's doing a new thing, and that new thing has a new expression. Whether that's the way you dress, or the music, or poetry, or the way the church building looks, or the way, the times when we meet, when God does a new thing, the religious people get upset. I, I, I can't change. Because that is what they have with God. They have religion. Those with the relationship says, no problem. I'm loving on the Lord this way, I'll love on the Lord that way. I'm worshiping God singing this, I'm going to worship God singing that. It's interesting, a few years back, God really put on my heart that we would start singing hymns. That every service, we'd at least have one, if not a couple of hymns. And that was the new wineskin, something that was old. <laughs> it says that the good rabbi takes from the old and the new and brings it in. So our new wineskin were old, are old hymns. <laughs> and just as God starts speaking that to my heart, all of a sudden, all these CDs start coming out of all these contemporary groups singing hymns, a hymn album. It was something God was speaking. It was a new wave of God's movement of his spirit. So who knows? Maybe in a couple years, God will have us all wear suits and ties. I, I don't know. I, I dread that thought. 
I mean, I'm, I'm formal when I wear long pants. <coughs> That's my idea of being formal. I have one suit, and I grudgingly wear it for weddings and funerals, and that's about it. And the only reason I have that is because my staff bought it for me. <laughs> but we have to be open. Now, here's what's funny. Is people will say this. Well, I'm not like you guys that go to church every week, but I go to church on Christmas and Easter. You know what's funny about that? Is Christmas and Easter, neither one are in the Bible as a day to celebrate. A matter of fact, I am about 100% certain that Jesus was not born anywhere near December. I'm almost certain he was born in August or September. I'm not going to go into the reasons why, but I'm sure he wasn't born in December because the shepherds were out in the fields. In Bethlehem, it snowed up in that area. Are you saying we shouldn't celebrate Christmas? The question is, when you do have Christmas, do you do it unto God, unto Him? It's not whether you do it or not, so are you saying we shouldn't have... I love Christmas. It's my favorite time of the year. I want to have Christmas. But at the same time, I, I realize it's something extra-biblical doing that could become unbiblical. And I think some people have taken it from being extra-biblical into the place of being unbiblical. Until Jesus isn't really glorified at Christmas. Jesus isn't glorified in their home. They're so busy with buying presents and decorating trees and running around like a chicken with their head cut off, they can't even think about Jesus. And it's so funny, in the month of December, they're not in the Word as much as they were in other months. Because they're so busy buying presents and wrapping presents and going to parties. Here they, here they are, worshiping Jesus. I don't have time to church. I have a... I don't have time to listen to the Word of God. I, I got a, a, a office party this night, and I, I got to run off to this, and I'm doing this party. And it's so funny, in, in the month of all months that we're seeing, we're going to choose to worship the Lord's birth, not that He wants us to worship that, um, is the month that we ignore Him the most. So all of a sudden, you've got a tradition getting in the way of a continual, consistent relationship with the Lord. And also Easter. Getting up early in the morning and having a service. Oh man, if you don't have that, that's sacrilegious. There's nowhere in the Bible it says to do that. Now, my philosophy is, if people will show up and non-Christians will show up and those guys that are willing to come to church once a year, well, I'll throw one because I'll preach the gospel. You know, if that's when the fish are biting, let's go fishing. <laughs> but to be honest with you, I, I don't really like Easter. Because I don't like getting up early and doing a service. <laughs> don't you worship the Lord's day of resurrection every day? Yes, every day. Every day I'm thankful the Lord raised again from the dead. I, I don't have to have some special day where I need to punish myself and everybody else. <laughs> Let's worship Easter Sunday morning by all sleeping in late and having a late service. So, again, we've got to be careful and, and re-ask ourselves these questions. Is it in the Bible? And, and is it in the Bible, am I supposed to be doing it? You know, here's what I find interesting. The Lord has given us a lot of traditions, if you would, really commands, and we look at them as optional. 
I would never miss an Easter sunrise service. But yet the Bible says don't forsake the gathering together and other brethren on a regular basis. So the question is, we fast four times a year, and, and the question is, what are you doing every day? Well, I go to Easter sunrise every year. But the question is, what are you doing every day? The reality is, is that God has told us not to forsake the gathering together and the brethren. Now, there's many of you here who have a tradition to go to church once a week. And I'll come back and ask you, is that all that the Lord wants from you? Well, what does it say? It doesn't even say to go to church once a week. Oh, cool. Well, it's whatever's in your heart. You see, I, I think you should go to church three or four times a week. That's what the Lord has showed me. Now, I know everybody's in a different season of their life, and everybody has a different uh, leading of the Lord. And, and I, I don't want to put some legalistic thing saying, if you're not going to church four times a week, you're not right with God. That would be ridiculous. But I'll come back and say, your tradition of coming to church Sunday morning only, is that really what the Lord's required of you? You see, I, I know the Lord's told me to preach tonight. I know the Lord's showed us to have a couple midweek services. The Lord showed us to have home Bible studies. Thus, I believe the Lord is showing you, who call this your church, to be a part of those studies. Not all of them. We have something going every night of the week. Impossible. But I think the Lord has something more than Sunday morning. I don't believe that you can be a solid, healthy Christian as you ought to be in our day and age by hearing one sermon a week, by getting with the brothers and sisters in the Lord, fellowship with them one day a week. I don't think you're going to be strong enough as you ought to be. Well, where in the Bible does it say I need to go? You know what the Bible says? It says submit to those who are in authority over you because they watch out for your souls. Let them watch over you with joy and not with grief. So there's the scripture. Your pastor is challenging you to go before the Lord saying, God, is my coming to church once a week all that you have for me in this time and this season of my life? And if the Lord says that's it, then fine. I respect that. But I don't think that's what the Lord's going to say. It's interesting. The Bible gives us some really clear commands on how to worship God in song. It says to lift our hands. It says it over and over and over in the Bible. It says it a lot. But there's many of you that won't lift your hands. Well, you know what? It's not my tradition. Well, it needs to be your tradition. Because God said it needs to be your tradition. Well, you know, that's just not my personality. I tried that one. God didn't buy that one either. I remember reading those scriptures, and, and I was always one of those cool, reserved guys who just, you know, didn't do that. I'm not like the other emotional people around me that do that kind of thing. And then I kept reading it in the scripture, and God just grabbed my heart and said, Brian, I'm commanding you to lift your hands unto me when you worship. And I just died a thousand deaths. And I remember going to service and, and, and thinking I was so disobedient because I didn't lift my hands, but I can't. And finally, I mean, I'd turn on the radio. Some guy would be talking about lifting hands. I'd, every verse in the Bible seemed to have something with lifting your hands. I, I couldn't get away. And so finally I said, okay, God. And I did one of these little puppy dog things, you know. And God said, lift. So I did the one hand cool thing, you know, flex the muscle. God said, hands, plural. And I remember that first time I did that, I lifted my hands all the way to the Lord. It was like a scale fell off my heart. And there was a worship I had with God that I had never experienced before. And I realized, God, you've not told us to lift our hands to try to take our cool away. There really is a reason for it. 
And so I encourage you to go back through the Scriptures and say, what does the Lord say to you? What is the Lord saying? Well, I'm doing this, this, and this. Is that in the Bible? Maybe you're not doing this, this, and this, and it is in the Bible. You know, the Bible tells us that we need to seek Him every single day in the Word. Is that your tradition? Well, my tradition is to get up, have a cup of coffee, read the newspaper, listen to the news, and go off to work. Okay, your tradition now is in violation to God's Word. It says in Isaiah 50, Jesus, giving us an example, said every morning, the first thing is the Father woke in Him to have the ear of a disciple to teach Him in that day. What are you saying? I can't have my coffee first? No, have your coffee first. But I'm just saying, you need to have a time your focus is seeking God. It says in Psalms 1, to meditate on His Word day and night. Are you? Well, on the way to work, I listen to talk radio. Well, maybe you need to have a, a, a CD of somebody reading the Bible to you on the way. And, and it's just the, through the whole Bible, a guy reading it, the, the scriptures as they have. Or maybe you need to just put in a praise tape and you need to worship on the way. You need to change your tradition of how you go to work, how you get up in the morning, how you go to bed at night. Maybe you need to come back and to say, the way I'm living traditionally, the way I get up to when I go to bed, the way my pattern of life is, I'm asking you to go back to the scripture and say, God, is this the way I am to be living? Because so often people are frustrated with life. They're frustrated in their marriage. They're frustrated in work. They're frustrated with their kids. They're frustrated with not the prosperity being there. They want to be there. And I'll say to you, God is who he said he would be, but are you being towards God the way God has asked you to be? He said if you will meditate in his word day and night that you will prosper in whatever you do. The Bible's promised that to you. And so it comes back to you saying maybe you have got this mentality that's not a biblical mentality. And thus, what you have is not relationship with God, but religion. And you're saying, God, I want to replace my religiousness with a relationship. It's easier. I just go through my little 10 things for the week and I'm done. I do my little church service every Sunday morning. I'm out of here. I did my religious duty for the week and now I can go about my own life. And God is saying, you can keep living that way, but I'm not accepting it as worship unto me. And it's not a life I can really bless. And so we need to come back and ask ourselves, are we living under that spout where those blessings are flowing out? And so the question here in Zechariah is, are you doing it as unto me? Notice what Jesus says in Matthew 6. And we'll look at a couple more scriptures in Matthew before we leave. In Matthew 6, again, looking at tradition in the traditional way they did it versus a biblical way. In Matthew chapter 6 there in verse 5, he says, When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and in the corners of the streets, and they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into the, your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetition as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And so here he says, my idea of prayer is not that you would do it to say, look at them, boy, he's so spiritual because he prays so wonderfully. But do it between you and God. Do it unto me, unto me, God says. 
And when you go to pray, really connect with them as you would connect with another person. Don't turn it into some religious thing of some recited prayers you say over and over and over again. God says that's what the heathen of the world do. They think by their punishing themselves by repeating some prayer over and over again that that's reaching the heart of God. And God says, no, it's grievous. That's what the heathen do. And then in verse 16, there of Matthew 6, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, he didn't say if, but when. Fasting is a part of the Christian life. When you fast, anoint your head and your face, uh, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but your Father who sees in secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So he says here, again, don't do it to be seen by men, but do it between you and the Lord. So I'm fasting every Thursday. I'm fasting every November, the first day of November. Whatever it may be, let it be between you and the Lord. And you're doing it just to bless Him, just to say, God, I I just want to touch your heart. You can study it out in Isaiah 58. It's to break the yokes. See, maybe in your life there's something weighing you down or holding you back, and you just go before the Lord saying, God, I want you more than anything. I don't want anything in me but you, God. And, and, and you're, you're not eating because you're just consecrated with a zeal in your heart saying, I want you, God. I want more of you. That's a beautiful fasting time. But if you're doing it to try to twist God's arm, ha <laughs> I've been fasting five days in a row. God's got to give me that new car now. God's not going to be manipulated. It's really something in your heart that's saying, I just desire God more than anything of this earth. And that's a beautiful fast unto God unto him. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, it says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So if you're going and eating a hamburger today for lunch, do it under the glory of God. God, I'm eating this hamburger. I ask you to use this meat and this cheese and protect me from all that Ebola in there and stuff. And, uh, and Lord, just heal me here and give me strength to serve you, to live for you today as I eat this. And forgive me for eating all those french fries. But do it to the glory of God. Or if you say, I'm going to fast today, then do that to the glory of God. Whether you eat, whether you drink, whether you don't eat or don't drink. When you get up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, do all that you do to the glory of God. So the next time you pull up to a movie theater, you go to watch, stop and pray. Lord, I ask that you be glorified in this time I go watch this movie. Boy, that might change whether you can go to that movie or not. God, I'm getting ready to watch this TV show. Lord, I ask now as I watch this sporting event or this show, Lord, that you would be glorified in my wife. Is God, can be God be glorified? Then don't do it. In all that you do, God should be getting glorified. He's given us all things to enjoy. But if he's not being glorified in it, don't do it. If you can go down to the beach and go surfing and, and God's glorified in it, go to the beach. But if you go down to the beach and all you're doing is girl watching, then for you, going to the beach is is not something you can glorify God with. Don't go to the beach. Whatever you do, do to the glory of God. So he comes back and he asks this question, turning back to Zechariah 7. He now asks that question. Well, it's not whether you do it or not. It's whether when you do do it, is it unto me? And in verse 6 he says, When you eat and when you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourself? Aren't you really doing it for yourself? Now, 
Maybe they're looking back and it was just a pity party time. Oh, poor us, our city got destroyed and we end up being slaves off in Babylon and it was a pity party thing. Or maybe it was just something to show themselves spiritual. I'm so spiritual, I fast five times a year. Either way, God wasn't getting the glory and it wasn't deepening the relationship with God. It was really something that benefited themselves. Should you not have obeyed the words which the Lord proclaimed through the former prophets when Jerusalem and the cities around it inhabited the and prospered, and the south and the lowlands were inhabited. God is saying, you know, had you guys just obeyed the Lord back uh, at the very beginning, we wouldn't even be having this conversation because the city never would have been destroyed, you never would have been taken captive, and thus these days of fasting never would have existed. It says in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel told the king Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. A daily, obedient life with God is better than any great sacrifice you can do. People often have that mentality. People come up, and I have had this several times. Brian, pray for my lottery ticket. Man, it's $110 million right now. Man, if I win, I'm going to tithe on that money, man. We could build a new church with that, dude. I'm like, if you win, don't give a penny of that to the church. I don't want that blood money. And number two, God is more glorified in your tithe on your one dollar than he would be on your hundred million. God just wants what you have in your hand now. Give him glory with it. What you're doing today, give glory. Don't not seek him every day and then fast and pray all weekend. God would rather you spend some time with him. Be the turtle, you know. Just walking along in the word, in prayer, seeking God every day than to try to do some great giant thing for him. I mean, those great giant things are great if we're doing the daily thing also. But if you're not doing the daily obedience, then the great giant thing doesn't mean anything. But if you're living a life of daily obedience and then you sacrifice unto God in a time of fasting, it means a lot. But you can't replace some great religious sacrificial thing for a daily walk. One does not make up for the other. So, man, I spend all day Saturday praying and fasting, but then on Monday you're not planning on getting into the Word and seeking the Lord. It won't make up for it. They're apples and oranges. The one thing is every day just loving God, serving God, living for God. The other thing is great sacrifices to God, which become beautiful in his sight, whether it's giving or fasting or going out and witnessing or whatever it might be. That sacrifice is beautiful if the daily obedience is intact. But one won't make up for the other. And in verse 8 he goes on, Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Execute, number one, execute true justice. Number two, show mercy and compassion. Number three, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless or the alien or the poor. Number four, let none of, the, let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. So here he's saying, guys, I mean, these great days of fasting are wonderful, but let's come back to a, just a very practical thing. For us as Christians, the way we would say this is walk in the Spirit. Let the fruit of God's Spirit flow from your life. The love, the joy, the goodness, the kindness, the gentleness, the self-control. You see, for me to be self-controlled today is beautiful as any day of fasting. For me today, even though I'm grumpy and sick and, you know, to, to, to deny myself, beat my body into subjection and take up the cross and be kind and loving. You see, that... That is a beautiful sacrifice unto God as if I were to fast for a week. So this is what he's coming back and, he, and he's saying this. Execute 
true, true justice. What is he saying? Truly, make God the first of your life. Truly, in truth, God is the first of your day. In truth, God is the first of your week. In truth, God is the first in your finances. In truth, you are washing your wife with the, the word of God. In truth, you are teaching your kids as you sit down, walk along the way. In truth, you really are living the Christian life when you go on the business trips and nobody's around to watch you. You really are, in truth, honoring God, putting him first and living for him. It, there's true justice there. And then mercy and compassion. You really are not just nice at church, but you're being kind and loving in the home, everywhere you go. I know I was really convicted by this a few weeks ago. I was really exhausted, and my son Tracy wanted some arrows for his bow and arrow. There was a few cats in the neighborhood that need to be killed. And, uh, no, only kidding, only kidding, only kidding. And uh, <laughs> there's those cat lovers out there going, Brian, how could you say that? Mice. There's some mice that needed to be killed. Mice! I have mice too! Don't do it. Okay, whatever. But anyway, I went over to Sports Authority here, and I went to the, and looked around all over the place, couldn't find any arrows. Went to the guy, said, you know, you over the sporting goods area? Yeah, this, you know. Where are the arrows? Oh, they're on the other side of the store. Sports Authority is a pretty big store, and I was tired. So we walk all over the store, we look all over the place, try to find somebody who's working, who in Sports Authority, they really don't work. And there was some guy doing something, and I asked him, and he said, oh, they're on the other side of the store. And I said, the other guy in the store told me they were over here. Well, I'm sure they're not over here. Are you sure? Well, they might be over in that aisle over there. Go take a look. And so I went and looked. He's not going to help me. And uh, they weren't there. And so I went back over to the other side of the store. And the guy said, I told you on the other side of the store. I said, the guy on that side of the store said they're on this side of the store. I said, who's in charge of this department? I am. And he goes, I'm not even sure if we have arrows. And I said, why didn't you tell me? And then I gave him a few managerial pieces of my thoughts of advice. <clears throat> basically saying, why don't you learn what you're doing there and quit saying you're over this department when you don't have a clue of what's in your department. And uh, my son Tracy, as we were walking out, said, Dad, that wasn't very kind. And I said, shut up, kid, or I'll beat you up too. No. <laughs> I didn't say that. Although I planned those evil things in my heart. But I, I again realized, you know, it would have been a sacrifice for me to just keep my mouth shut and to continue to be kind even in that situation. And that's what God wants, he says. That that would be greater than a day of fasting. And then not to oppress those who are less fortunate than us. Especially living here next to the Mexican border. There's some guy on the freeway whose car is very working and you know it has a Mexican license plate to say hey, get that piece of junk back to Mexico and get it off our highways you know that's not right or to see some aliens running across the the road in front of you making you have to break one of those guys get back to their own country that's wrong the Bible says that we need to have a heart of compassion towards those that are less fortunate than us that don't have the advantages that we have and that's a wicked heart, not to care. Now, you say, well, Brian, I mean, there's issues in the school system with the hospitals and eating up our welfare money. And all. You know, I, I don't want to get into the whole political aspect of it. I'm just saying on a practical level where we live, we should have a heart of compassion towards those widows, fatherless, the poor, aliens who have less advantages than we do. And then not to plan evil in our heart, to not let 
the fantasies go on, whether it's being angry at somebody and bitter and getting back at them and boy, once I hurt them back, I'll feel, or committing adultery in your heart or whatever it might be, don't let that happen. The great pastor uh, Spurgeon said, you, you cannot help a bird from flying overhead and pooping on you, but you can keep a bird from making a nest in your hair. And the whole point is, is I, I understand wild and crazy thoughts are gonna fly through my mind, but if I say, if I grab that thought and begin to develop that thought, whether it's adultery or envy or jealousy or anger or getting back or whatever, at that point it does become sin. And so he's saying, if you want something greater than fasting unto me, this is what I would prefer, these four things. And in verse 11 he goes on and he says, this is what I prophesied to your forefathers before the destruction came. But in verse 11, but they refused, number one, to heed. So here's the four progressions of a hardness of heart. First of all, they just were uninterested. They didn't listen as they should have listened. Secondly, they shrugged their shoulders. That's like an ox or a mule not letting them put the saddle or the bridle on them. They shrugged their shoulders. And then number three, they just stopped their ears so that they could not hear. They put their fingers in their ears. La, 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 I can't hear you, I can't hear you. And then number four, they made their hearts like flint, refusing to hear the law. That, that term means it's set in a position that cannot be changed, and if you try to change it, it would break it. It would be like a little plastic figurine that you, maybe you had a little plastic figurine of a horse and you broke its leg off, and you said, don't cry, honey, I'll fix it back. Right. You know, whatever super glue you try, it doesn't ever really work, right? Once you break it, it's gone. And this is, this is what they're saying. They set their hearts in such a place that if God ever tried to turn them, it would just crumble them in pieces. This is how they positioned their hearts before the Lord. And they didn't, re they didn't open their hearts to the Holy Spirit. That's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit right there. Where you can say no to God when he is trying to tug you in the right direction. And now the Holy Spirit has no effect on moving your heart anymore. And in verse 13, Therefore it happened that just as he proclaimed they, should not, they would not hear, so they called and I would not listen, says the Lord of hosts. But I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations which they had not known. Thus the land became desolate after them, so that no one passed through or returned, for they made the pleasant land desolate. So it's them and their ways. They had all the religious stuff going on, but they had nothing truly in their heart in relationship with me going on. So although they did all this religious stuff like you're doing, the fasting outwardly, Inwardly, there was no heeding my word. There was no obedience to what I wanted. And that's why they were destroyed. So even if you're fasting these five times a year, the one day on Yom Kippur and then plus these extra four days, it doesn't mean that you're right with me. Just because you made a sacrifice to come to church today doesn't mean you're right with God. Maybe you'll leave here feeling good about yourself. Boy, I haven't missed one church service all year. Well, great. Feel good about yourself. But if you weren't here, unto God you were singing. Unto God you're listening to the message. Unto God, when you gave of your tithes and your offerings, you weren't honoring Him. You weren't worshiping Him in it. Afterwards in the fellowship, somebody says, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. When you know you're not doing great. You're not opening up and, and confessing your sins one to another, praying for another, encouraging one another. You haven't been in the Word every day, so thus your heart's not overflowing with the Word of God that you can share with somebody else here today. So really, your coming to church was vain. Your coming to church was empty. Outwardly, with your lips you worshiped me, but in your heart there was only vanity. There wasn't true worship. God's desire is to bless us. And this is why he's saying this. He's not trying to bum anybody out. 
You're here today going, gee, I've been going to church every Sunday. I thought I was doing good. Now you're telling me I'm not doing good even though I'm going to church. Well, God's not trying to bum you out. It's good that you're here. But it, it doesn't solve all the problems. It doesn't solve anything until your heart comes and surrender unto God. But look at all the blessings God wants to heap upon us. I'm basically going to just read chapter 8. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies, I am zealous for Zion with a great zeal, with great fervor, I am zealous for her. So God is saying, I'm zealous. This is a verse he had back in chapter 1 when he was angry uh, with them because all the nations were at peace when, when the city of Jerusalem was in calamity. God has a great desire for Jerusalem even this very, very moment. And the Bible tells us in Psalms we should pray for the peace of Israel. Verse 3, notice this. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called, number one, the city of truth. Number two, the mountain of the Lord of hosts. Number three, the holy mountain. Notice, first of all, God wants to give a new reputation to that city. God wants to give a new reputation to you today. Today, just like Israel, all the promises of God are yea and amen to you. God wants to cause you to be a new person. All the old things pass away, all things new. He wants you to be called the person of truth. He wants you to be called a person who God's presence lives in. You are holy unto the Lord. Number two, notice what God wants to do. He wants to put his hand of protection upon you. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand because of the great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Typically in a society, the very old and the very young are the most vulnerable in this society. And he's saying there's not going to be any concern for them. Whether you see a little kid walking down the street or an old person walking down the street, there'd be no concern because they're totally protected. I think often, not always, God allows difficulty and even evil to come upon his people. That's not evil that God does that. But I think a lot of times people in the world are hurt and damaged because they're not they're, they're, not, they're where they shouldn't be. They're partaking in things they shouldn't be partaking in. They don't have the mind of the Lord when they're at the football game. They don't have a life surrendered to Christ when they're at wherever they're at. And thus, the reason they got into that fight or they got into that situation or they got hurt or whatever, or they got shot, it's because they weren't living the Christian life. Had they were living the Christian life, they wouldn't have been there or they wouldn't have been there in the mindset they, they had at the time. And so here, when you're submitted to God, there is a protection that God kicks in. Verse 6, notice what else. Thus says the Lord of hosts. It is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days. Will it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts. So God's saying in my day, you're going to be blown away, but I'm telling you, even unto me, it's going to be a marvelous thing. So number three, God wants to blow your mind with marvelous, marvelous things. There in verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts. Behold, I will uh, save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. So this tells us that it's not talking about coming out of Babylon, which they had already done, but there would be another time the people would be kicked out of the land, 70 AD, and another time they'd be brought back in, 1948, in the present time. And of course here he's talking about another time uh, in the millennial reign when they come out of uh, Petra and they come back into the land. But he says in verse 8, I will bring them back, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. So there, number four, we see that God wants you to dwell with Jesus forever. He's your God in his presence, in his city, with him. 
And there in verse 9, Thessalonians, Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, you who have been hearing these in these days. So those who are hearing the word of God are strong. Psalms 1 tells us that. 1 John 2 tells us that. That you are strong and overcome the evil one because the word of God abides in you. God wants you to be strong through hearing his word and knowing his word. And then he goes on to say at the end of verse 9 and 10 that the difficulties that brought up that were upon you, the confusion that came upon you was from me because of your disobedience, but no longer. Now you'll hear the word and that confusion will be gone and you'll be strong through the word. And in verse 11, but now I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days, says the Lord of hosts, for the seed shall be prosperous. God wants to prosper you. If you're a student, he wants to prosper you as a student. If you're a businessman, he wants to prosper you as a businessman. He wants to prosper you as a, as a husband, a wife, a, a parent. God wants your, his hand of blessing to, to everything you touch, he has touched right on top of it. And there it goes and gives a description of those kind of prosperity. And there in verse 13, it shall come to pass that just as you have a curse among the nations, O house of Judah and the house of Israel, so I will save you and you shall be a blessing. So God wants to bless you and prosper you that then you become a blessing, that your blessings, your prosperity begins to spill upon others. This is what he told Abraham in Genesis 12. I'll bless you and you'll become a blessing to all the nations. And there in verse 14, for thus says the Lord of hosts, just I determined to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, says the Lord of hosts, and I would not relent. So again in these days I am determined to do good to Jerusalem. And then he goes on and talks about how he's going to do good to them by giving them character. These are the things you shall do. You're going to, number one, speak man, each man speak truth to his neighbor. Number two, give judgment in your gates for the truth, justice, and right and peace. Let none of you think evil in your heart. Again, so it's sort of a repeat of chapter 7, verse uh, 9 and 10. He's saying sort of the flip side. I'm going to give you character. You're going to be a truthful people. You're going to be a just people. You're going to be a people of peace. You're going to be a people that don't have evil going on inside your heart. I'm going to make it so as... As we see God's, as you're, you're repented and you're yielded, submitted unto his hand, he can develop that character in you. And then in verse 18, then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, the fast of the tenth, shall be joy and gladness and cheerful feast for the house of Judah, there for love, truth, and peace. God is saying every month is going to be a holiday. I love that holiday season. I love the filling of the holidays. And here he's saying, you're going to look back at January and say, man, God blessed me in this way. I'm going to look back at February. Oh, God did this in my life. I'm going to look back at March. God did this in my life. I'm going to look back at July. You're going to be able to look back at every month and not remember a destruction, not remember difficulty. You're going to look back and remember the blessings of God. And that's going to cause you to celebrate a new feast every year of the great joy that God's going to bring. It's just a continued holiday spirit in your heart. Jesus said, I tell you these things, that your joy may be made full. Filled up to the brim. That's the way God wants us to be. Full of joy. Not necessarily happiness, that's circumstantial. But his joy, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. And there, finishing up in verse 20, thus says the Lord of hosts, people shall yet come, inhabitants of many cities, inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, let us continue to go and pray. Listen, let's continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will go also. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem, referring to prayer and to pray before the Lord. 
For thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days ten men from every language of the nation shall grasp the sleeve of the Jewish man, saying, Let us go uh, with you, for we have heard that God is with you. So there, number ten, we see that people are drawn unto you because you are continuing a life of prayer. Jesus, when he came into the temple, he said, My house is a house of prayer. Not just a house of teaching, that's great. Not just a house of worship, that's wonderful. Not just a place of evangelism, that's needful. But he said, my house is a house of prayer. And I need to ask you this question. This is the heart of God. Do you make the building that we have, and the building we're going to have, in the course of your week, do you at one time or another make it a house of prayer? Nope, it's just a house of worship and teaching. Then you're not fulfilling God's heart for his house. You need to have that time of prayer. And I, I can't encourage you enough, as a friend to a friend, as a pastor to his sheep, I cannot exhort you enough to come and pray with us on Sunday nights. Why? Because we don't have enough people? No, it's packed. Why? Because God is doing a great thing in us as we are seeking him. And more than that, just like I have all my kids there praying with us Sunday night. Why? Because when the glory falls, I want them to be there. I want them to see the hand and the might and the power of God. The Bible makes it clear. When we pray according to his will, he hears us. We have the very thing that we ask of him. We're praying for revival in our souls, an empowering of his spirit in our life, and we're praying for a revival throughout all our community. We are going to see it. And when the glory falls, I want my family, I want all of you there to be a part of it. It's changing us. There's a character. I'll tell you, it was one thing when we prayed a few months in a row. It was another thing we prayed for a couple years in a row. Now that we've been seeking God, many of us, every single Sunday night for seven, eight years, there is just a deepening in our lives. I can't explain to you. But the people in the world are going to see these people when, as they're going up to that time of prayer, and they're latching onto them. The word grasping is like a bear grabbing a hold of its prey. They're grabbing onto him saying, I won't let you go unless you take me into that house of prayer with you. Because it was something so vital, something so powerful, something so real, that they wanted to be invited and be a part of it as well. So how I exhort you. Let's all bow this morning in prayer. Lord, we come before you once again, and we thank you for your word. And we know that where we are is where we are. And here today, Lord, as we look at your word, what you are saying, God, I can't see it, but you can see it. You know the heart. You said that when you fast, you do it for yourself. You saw their heart. And there's some here today that they're coming here not because they love you and worship you for themselves, so they won't be blackballed by you by not coming to church. Or they're coming because uh, they don't want to displease their spouse, and it keeps more peace in the home if I don't take my wife off or... I don't, I'm not a bad example for my kids, or I don't discourage my parents by not coming. They're doing it for themselves, not for you. It's not because of a real heart of love and, and care and worship and gratitude to you. And Lord, there's some real work in the hearts this morning that you need to do. You said that you would send your truth and that we'd hear the truth and the truth would set us free. You said you'd send your word and you healed them. God, I ask this morning by the power of your spirit that your word would come right now and bring that healing. You said it would be a two-edged sword to divide between the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Lord, there's some here today that have been self-deceived, and now as the word has come, as that fine scaffold in your hand, they can, on a very thin line, but yet they can divide it now and see 
yeah, I, I wasn't really worshiping God in song. I'm not really worshiping God in coming to church. I'm really not being just and honoring God first in my life. I'm not really living with that compassion and kindness. I'm doing this huge religious thing without just being a Christian walking in the fruit of the Spirit and love and joy and peace. And God today is saying that I, I'm sending this word to you today to heal you, not to condemn you, but to convict you that you would cry out to him. The Bible says you would hear his word and be strong. There's some of you right now that say, all I want to do is get out of here. There's some of you here right now are saying, that's me. I, I want my heart healed. I, I want a true and sincere relationship with him. I want all this religion taken off of me. I want this scales of religiosity to be scraped away. I, I want to be just free to worship God in spirit and truth. If that's your heart's desire right now, just lift your hands unto him. Just like you'd say, Daddy, Daddy, pick me up. Daddy, Daddy, I surrender. Daddy, Daddy, touch me. Daddy, Daddy, heal me. Lord, you see these hearts of people who are saying, it's me, Lord. It's, it's me. I want to be right with you. I don't want to be religious. I don't want a dead thing happening. Lord, give these guys new wine with a new wine skin that they could fill that new wine into. There'd be a new work of gratitude, a new work of worship, a new work of obedience, a new work of love in their hearts, that they would seek you and serve you with all their heart, that they would find you because you would let them find you because they come with such a whole heart. Heal all of us, Lord. Continue to wash us in the water of the word. Thank you for washing us today. Cleanse us, heal us, restore us, strengthen us. In Jesus' precious name. And everyone said, amen, amen. Hey, spend some time in fellowship with each other. There's all kinds of food in the bookstore out there. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord. Bye-bye.